I'm Bernie Crane. I'm John Crane. You're listening to the Jazz Session with Jason Crane, our dad. Welcome to the Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. The Jazz Session is sponsored by Matt Rock and Murat Verdi. This is episode 399 for August 27th, 2012. Today's guest is Nashville saxophonist Evan Cobb. Thanks to the Respect Sextet for the theme music to today's show. They're online at respectsextet.com. Thanks to Dave Rabel for the show's logo and Rob Grundle for the Jazz or Bust logo. Speaking of jazz or bust things, the tour starts again at the end of this week when I head to the Detroit Jazz Festival for Labor Day weekend. Then I'll be going slowly west through the Midwest and uh, out through the Rocky Mountain states to the Pacific Northwest, down the West Coast through California, uh, probably into the Southwest. I hope so because I, I really love the Southwest and hope to get back there. And then somewhere else after that. I'm not really sure where or what I'll be doing when I get there. But in any case, that'll be the next couple of months. I could use your help to make this tour a reality, the second part of the tour. There are uh, two ways to support the tour, more than two, really. Uh, you can go to thejazzsession.com slash tour. That's the, the first thing to do, thejazzsession.com slash tour. And once you get there, you can make a donation, which is certainly the, the prime way of supporting the tour, uh, you'll find easy donation buttons at a variety of levels, and there are thank you gifts spelled out there. You can also buy a book for my Kindle, which uh, is great because it keeps me in things to read on those long bus rides without having to use my extremely scarce food money uh, to make that happen. You can also suggest a place for me to stay, possibly with you, or a place to read poetry, or someone to interview. And in terms of those three things, just remember that I'm starting in Detroit and going west from there. So pretty much anything west of Detroit is fair game. If you'd like to have a longer-term relationship with The Jazz Session, you can become a member at thejazzsession.com slash join. Once you get there, you'll also find easy buttons to make either a monthly or yearly recurring donation to the show, uh, a membership. And you can do that starting as low as $10 a month or $110 a year and on up from there. At the top level, which is either $50 a month or $500 a year, you can become a named sponsor of the show, like Matt Rock and Monat Verdi, whose names you heard at the beginning. That might seem like a lot to many of you, but if it seems like an achievable amount uh, to you in particular, then please do that, because believe me, it makes an enormous difference for me. You can follow me on Twitter at Jason D. Crane, D as in David. You can get the show in iTunes, and uh, please take a second to review the show in iTunes if you get it that way. That would help me greatly. You can also get it using any old RSS reader or uh, podcast reader, and all the links for all of those things are at thejazzsession.com. Don't forget there's a newsletter which goes out each week. You can get that at thejazzsession.com. Just click on the mailing list link. And I think that's all the housekeeping I have for you. Uh, please, if you get a chance... 
head down to Nashville and check out all the great music there. This is the last of six interviews that I recorded when I was in Nashville. And uh, it's the one with the person with whom I stayed, Evan Cobb, a saxophonist, very fine saxophone player, uh, who's quite busy in the Nashville scene and uh, spends a fair amount of time on the road as well. Um, it was great to meet Evan and uh, actually his wonderful dog, Iggy. And we just we had a fun time together. He was incredibly kind in uh, taking me you know, all over Nashville. Nashville's really not all that accessible if you don't have a car. So uh, he was he was great in uh, in taking me around, introducing me to people. And I was also very happy to interview him on his own merits because before I ever met Evan or made a plan to stay at his house, I heard his record, which is called Falling Up and which is quite excellent. So here's a track from Falling Up, followed by my interview with saxophonist Evan Cobb. My guest is a saxophonist, oboist, clarinetist. I'm kind of making a joke, so we were just talking about this. All of the saxophones ist Evan Cobb. It's such a pleasure to have you on the show, man. Thanks, Jason. Thanks for having me. I want to start, uh, your new album is called Falling Up, but before we get there, I just want to talk a little bit about um, the Nashville scene and the ways in which you've made a life here. You, like me, are originally from the Northeast and uh, kind of got bitten by the Nashville bug really through no original intention of your own and then ended up getting a lot of work down here and i just want to talk about how you've constructed this life sure um well uh when i was still in graduate school i had met a a female companion who will laugh at me for referring to her as that (laughs) um but i had got a girlfriend who was a vanderbilt student and um started coming down to visit her a little bit uh, on off weekends and whatnot during school. And at first I knew literally zero about Nashville. Um, I just had the general assumption, oh, country music town, uh, you know, I bet there's lots of honky-tonks and, and funny stuff, and that's about it. 
and I'd of course have my horn with me to practice. And I, the very first time I was here, I went out to a jazz jam session, and there was a whole bunch of really strong players, and I was knocked out. I just had no idea or clue that such a thing even existed in Nashville. So in each subsequent trip, I tried to dig a little bit deeper into that and met a few more people until the finally at the, like, I think I came to visit about four times that year. By the fourth time, a couple guys were saying, man, uh, when are you going to be back around because we've got this gig coming up and this and that. And I was thinking to myself, man, like, there's just stuff falling at me here in Nashville and in at Purchase, which is a little bit removed from uh, New York where I was doing graduate school, it was like, I mean, the barrel, I felt like if I was even scraping the sides, it would be a lot. <laughs> so it just seemed like the obvious choice when I finished graduate school to take the plunge. Um, and so I came down here and um, just tried to mind my business and practice a lot and, and play for people and make friends. And um, it took me a few months to get on my feet, but uh, lo and behold, the uh, Nashville's been very good to me. And we've talked about this. I've been I've been uh, staying with you since I've been here. We've talked about this a little bit. But Nashville seems like the kind of town where, um, in some ways similar to New Orleans, the cost of living is reasonable enough and the work is plentiful enough that it's possible to, to actually make a life for yourself where you can work completely in music without also being a barista or whatever, you know, the things you, all you have to do in New York just to to get by sure i mean it's it's by no means easy but um it is i mean the cost of living here is very agreeable compared to new york um i would say that it's got to be something like 33 percent to 50 percent for overall cost of living um and frankly i don't think the gigs are really paying all that much differently although don't tell anybody um (laughs) but you know i mean the the hundred dollar play from six to nine you know play play as wallpaper jazz trio sort of act i mean i don't as far as i know that's not paying um two two to three times the amount difference in new york that it would take to you know make the same uh kind of balance that cost difference out sure um so yeah i mean you get a lot for your money in nashville in terms of space uh and uh and comfort although you certainly do need to have a car in this town to be to have a chance at getting anywhere uh, because there's almost no tr- public transportation, but that's a totally separate issue. Yeah, and this town is incredibly spread out. It's It's been it amazing to me that as we drive from one venue to the next, it seems like we're driving from one city to the next almost, and we're all still in Nashville. Yeah, I believe technically we're the second least dense city in America of, the, of America's 50 most populated cities. Yeah, it's incredible. So does the fact that you play a bunch of different instruments, I mean, in fact, your original instrument was oboe, and now you're equally accomplished on saxophone, and I've seen you play clarinet, I've seen you play flute on gigs. Uh, does the fact that you play a bunch of different instruments make it easier for you to find work here and there? Um, in some respects, very much so. Um, for one, I teach a lot, and teaching is sort of the the main lifeline, um, just teaching private lessons, um, especially at, for somebody like me when I came here with nothing to get going. Um, by being able to be a good musician and, and have all those different instruments at my disposal, you know, going into a high school, I found that for 95% of the high school uh, instrumentalists on all of those instruments, that I was more than adequate to teach them. There'd be, there's certainly the occasional, uh, you know, very advanced clarinetist or flutist where I know that I'd be doing them a disservice to have them take lessons with me. And, that, and then I'll reference them to somebody who's a much more... Um, advanced or accomplished uh, player on those instruments. But that's, being able to do all those instruments is certainly huge because 
here many of the public schools are happy to have a teacher come in um, like one day a week and they'll set up the students for lessons for you kind of one after the no- one after another during band or after school or whatever but they don't want to have somebody come in you know for the two flutes and then somebody to come in for the one oboist if there's even that many and all those sorts of things being able to have one person who can do all that is certainly um very useful um and also of course you know for any saxophonist in this day and age i mean if you want to work in any sort of big band i mean you have to be able to play flute and clarinet there's no getting around it unless you're just you know an unbelievable saxophonist and there are some of those out there um i've taken lessons from some of them um but for the most part it's a prerequisite um and having the oboe is just sort of my trump card um or very funny looking uh joker card if you (laughs) want to think of it from a different perspective have you had a chance to uh uh, to develop relationships with some of the established or kind of more long-term established players here in the nashville scene who maybe have been able to help kind of navigate the waters initially. Oh, absolutely. Um, in fact, I prob- I would not be able to be um, making a full-time living here without having had the help of some of those guys. Um, one of the remarkable things about Nashville to me is that its sense of community is really strong. Um, from the time I very first got here, um, I noticed that if I was um, a gentleman about how I went about my business and not pushy and... Um, showed that I had uh, substance to uh, what I was doing, people were very welcoming um, and very happy to show me the ropes and get around and meet other folks. And so there's been a number of folks, yeah, who have been really uh, tremendous in that regard. Um, You know, Dennis Soley was was just about the warmest person to me of anybody I've never met before (laughs) Um, and helped me get some different gigs and um, you know, introduced me to the Nashville Jazz Orchestra. Um, and uh, after I moved into my current location, I became neighbors with Jeff Coffin. And uh, Jeff has really been a, a very strong mentor to me as both a musician and a human and a Nashville scene representative.
we're uh, we're closing in on talking about the record. I just want to ask, can you talk about some of the ensembles that you regularly play with here? Sure. Well, I play with the Nashville Jazz Orchestra, which plays every week, um, led by Jim Williamson. Um, I also play with a funk band called The Dynamites, which features Charles Walker, who's an old soul legend. Well, he's not old, but... <laughs> Obviously, to be a soul legend, you had to be performing in the 60s, which Charles certainly was. Um, I also occasionally play with the Nashville Symphony um, when they have saxophones on board. Um, Oh, no, I'm sure I'm forgetting some important things now. (laughs) Um, I hosted the monthly jam session at the Nashville Jazz Workshop, of course, which you came to, um, which has been an important pipeline both for me and for um, the scene, I think. That's on um, the third Sundays? That's on the third Sunday of the month, and it's always free. Um, I'm drawing a blank here right now, but um, I'm sure there's a number of other ensembles. So tell me about the uh, tell me about the band on Falling Up, which is kind of a great representation of what you've been talking about in terms of the musicians who are here in town. Well, thank you for saying that. Um, the band is all guys from right here. Um, the trumpeter is Matthew White, Dr. Matthew White who uh, came to Nashville just about the same time as me and has been a faculty member at Belmont. Um, Currently, I think he's been doing a whole bunch of work with the Mavericks. And, of course, he plays with the Nashville Jazz Orchestra and all sorts of groups. And he is a fabulous trumpeter, um, studied at the University of Miami, and uh, usually smokes me on my own stuff, but I don't hold that against him. (laughs) Um, Matt actually just took a position as... um, the trumpet chair at uh, the University of Coastal Carolina. So he'll be uh, somewhat leaving town. I think he's hoping to come back quite a bit, but I know I will certainly miss him. Um, Although he will be putting out a record hopefully very soon, but that's top secret. Um, Also on on, uh, following up is uh, Dr. Bruce Dudley, who is a wonderful piano player, also originally from the Northeast, studied at Eastman. And Bruce is a faculty member at Belmont, and I think an adjunct faculty member at Vanderbilt. Um, he's just an absolute wizard on the piano uh, and a very balanced human and musician and um, brings forth, uh, really he was kind of the glue that kept the whole ensemble together because a lot of us were, you know, young jerks. <laughs> no, no, we're not. But, uh, but Bruce uh, is maybe the mentor in the ensemble, if you will. Um, also in the group is Jonathan Wires, who's a wonderful bassist. He lived in Memphis for a number of years, at least a decade, working there, and he's since come here, and he's on faculty at uh, Middle Tennessee State University. Uh, he's a tremendous uh, composer and uh, a bass player capable of bringing every ensemble's music to levels that I think most ensembles don't I'm at least when I've heard him play in ensembles, they usually attain a musical sense that I, I've never seen them attain with other bass players. Uh, and lastly, our drummer is uh, Joshua Hunt. Um, Josh came down here a few years ago after just about completing his doctorate at the University of Illinois. Um, and Josh has got a great feel uh, and a great um, he's a great hang. Uh, he recently did a whole bunch of work with Allison Krauss and Union Station, and I'm uh, lucky and honored that he's willing to still play jazz quintet gigs for jazz quintet money. <laughs> um, but Josh is a great spirit and uh, and really helped 
you know, in my, as many instrumentalists tend to do, drums is the one part that I don't really write any part for. I just decide, well, this one you should probably look at the drumming part. This one you should look at the piano. This one here's the bass and piano. And then I just give them really stupid hand signals that suggest what I think the drum should be doing on the <laughs> tune should do. And he, of course, uh, was a magician at interpreting that and uh, breathing life into all the tunes on the album. So compositionally speaking, how did you how did you know kind of inside yourself that okay now I'm ready with these compositions to put out a record. Now's the time for me to document what what's happening right now in my own musical life. Well, one of the um, benefits that I've had of hosting this jam session here is that um, I've, I write a new tune for the jam session for each month. Um, we usually have a featured guest, and I tend I try to write a tune with that featured guest in mind, some way to feature them, um, if not just to have fun together as a unit when we're up there. Um, and the, the, besides forcing myself to crank out something new every month, it's also vital because I tend to record it, and then I can come back, and then I have, a, a, at the very least, a very strong, rough draft of a new tune. And many of them, uh, you know, are not tunes that I've that I decide are going to be really in my repertoire, but a number of them turn out to have um, uh, enough substance that I think, man, I, this is something that I want to work with. And uh, so I edit a little bit here and there, and then, um, you know, between other jam sessions and, and hangs with friends, you know, um, just getting together and playing music, I, I just kind of whittled away at each of these and shaped each of the tunes. And, um, you know, after, a, you know, two or so years of that, you know, if you think that's 24 months, although there's a few months, that, of course, that we don't have the jam or it lands on a holiday or something, but even if that's 20 months and that's uh, 20 tunes, and if half of them are decent, well, hey, that's easily an album's worth. So, uh, Talk to me about the editing process. When you've, uh, when you've got, you know, got what it seems like, I guess, the first draft of a tune, what are you then... What are you then listening for? What's the editing process like? Are you removing things? Are you adding them in? How does it usually? Work? Uh, that oh, it always changes. Um, you know, my tunes. I, I think one of the most important parts to my writing is that there has to be a rhythmic hook and a melody 
that you can sing. And I say that, and you're going to play an example of Eastern Belfield, which is probably the least singable melody. <laughs> um, well, certainly the least singable melody that I've ever written. Um, and it's laughable to even try to think about singing it. At least it is for me. Um, but the editing process is basically just a chance to to hear what worked, what didn't. Um, whether Sometimes it's little things like segues. Um, like, oh man, this tune is, is cool, but we really need some hits for a drum solo or something to give another element. Or this tune needs a shout chorus to tie it back together because the melody is really only 12 measures or something. Um, you know, or everything was good, but the tune ended wrong, so let me write a new coda or anything like that. Um, it just gives me the chance to, to shape it as and do it without uh, spending, <laughs> spending money in a studio or something like that, which is also a way to figure out what you want to do with tunes, but it takes, eases the pressure off me. Sure. And everything, or most of the things you just described there, uh, in terms of what you're listening for in songs, they all seem to be really based in a, a kind of performative aspect, which I don't know, may sound dumb, but I just mean you're thinking of these tunes as compositions people are going to listen to, and how they, how they kind of feel, how they fit together as pieces of music, not just from a compositional standpoint, but actually having to, having to play them and have the end result be heard by people. Very much so. Um, to me, I want tunes that a band can play. Um, you know, I just went to Chicago and played all these tunes with a completely different unit. Uh, and to me, you know, when I send somebody something and I say, hey, here's a couple nights at, you know, X amount of money, I mean, I obviously don't have a, a major name for myself and uh, putting, you know, trying to put together my own stuff and, and, and hire great players and then telling them that they're going to need to do, you know, eight hours of playing homework is like, well... <laughs> It's not going to work unless there was, you know, not unless, uh, you know, my name had a famous uh, ring to it or something like that. Um, so it's very important to me that the stuff is playable. Um, and similarly, on that related note, um, one of the things that I've thought about a lot in developing the jam session and the compositions is that the music also should be accessible to listeners. And one of the things... That I one of the things that I did teaching wise here in Nashville was I taught music appreciation at the community college uh, right down the road from me actually and in that class it was a great learning experience for me because I probably had about 90 different students over the course of the year and the students ranged um, from musical knowledge from I had a few students who were there to learn about specifically about music and hopefully jumpstart a career to students who literally couldn't describe the difference between a string instrument and a brass instrument, uh, at least in the terms of sound. Um, and the thing is, every one of those students is equally interested in music, and you have to remember that. I think there's an Ornette Coleman quote that all listeners are equal in their opinion. And so when I'm writing music, I try to think of that classroom and think, what is it that can make this music uh, something that everybody can grab onto? And I don't mean that in the sense that I dumb it down, but there has to be um, uh, there's, there has to be a vital component that no matter what your um, jazz background is or music background uh, or musical interests are, that you you hear it and you immediately I don't know want to whistle along to the melody or something like that. Um, and generally, I think that comes from a tune. Most students in the class, when I ask them what they like about music, they would tell me, "I like it when it has a beat." Um, so I try to keep that in mind. 
Do you think uh, living and working where you do impacts that attitude toward music? The fact that so much, you know, uh, I mean, very commercially successful music is made here, and I don't mean that in a negative. I just mean there are people here who know how to write songs that people want to listen to and people who play songs people want to listen to. Do you think that seeps in at all to, to what you're doing musically now that you've come here? Absolutely, um, on a few levels. Um, one is I've had the pleasure of working with some really great singer-songwriters. Um, and, you know, to think that all music has to have really advanced chord changes or rhythmic figures or everything like that, um, when I'm playing this stuff, would immediately make me unhirable. You know, if I'm trying to play the hippest stuff, you know, that some people describe it as being too hip for the room. Um, and, you know, these... This, the songs are perfectly crafted. Like I, work, I, I played uh, recently with J.D. Souther, who's just a brilliant writer. Um, and he's a huge jazz fr- fan and freak. <laughs> um, grew up listening to the Stan Kenton bands. Um, and we talk about jazz together all the time and listen to music together. Um, but when I play his, his, his tunes, obviously I'm not going to be working out Coltrane changes over them. I mean, there might be something inflected deep down in what I'm doing, but it has to suit the music and the style. Um, So I certainly think about that. And the other side of that is that um, the Nashville jazz scene, while it is strong, it's not very large. Um, And so in serving something like the jam session, which is to serve the community, um, you know, I... I want to make sure that nobody ever feels turned off by jazz or, um, you know, my music or anything like that. So essentially, uh, the writing does have to draw people in. Yeah, and I was impressed at the jam session. You know, I've been to jam sessions where the only people in the audience are people who are going to play, which was not the case at this jam session where there were quite a number of people who were in the room who just came to listen. They didn't have instruments. They didn't get up and sing. They just came, checked out the jam session, and went home like it was any other gig, which I thought was pretty cool. Yeah, we you know we try to make sure that it, the jam session is open and constructive. Um, and I open it for questions for players and listeners alike um, because, you know, a jam session, while it's a chance to work on some of the tunes that you're working on and meet new players and make new friends. Um, you know, it also, I don't like a jam session that devolves into 10 horn players taking choruses on a blues or a, or goodness for, for God's sake, uh, like a Cherokee or something and making the bass player bleed. Um, <laughs> because that's not indicative of how jazz, you know, you wouldn't go to a concert and hear that. And a jam session you know, is it is a chance to think about what uh, you would expect to see and hear at a, at, at a for, more quote unquote formal concert, like in a jazz club or whatever. And the fact that we do it at the jazz workshop, which is such a beautiful space, I think is helpful, so that people aren't, uh, you know, players aren't thinking like this is just some dingy place that I can sit here and play, you know, play until that guy finishes his beer and walks out of here. The tunes have to be played in a way that, for listeners, it's interesting. Um, and what listener wants to go hear 25 minutes of the same tune? I certainly don't. I don't want to play 25 minutes of the same tune, uh, and I don't think audience—I don't think very many audience members want to be uh, in that audience. 
Um, so the jam session is a chance to work on all of those things, to work on your stage presence, your professionalism, um, you know, and for listeners, a chance to hear, hear, you know, s- singular approaches to tunes. And by that, I mean, you know, we'll have there on any given tune, there might be a vocalist and two horn players and the rhythm section, and not everybody's going to solo on every tune. Um, you know, not every tune has to have a drum solo. Not every tune has to have every horn player solo. Um, so that's that's part of the element to me of the of the jam session here. It's not to say that people get up and then I I come in with the uh, the jazz Nazi um, cane and say, no, you can't solo. You haven't uh, you haven't earned your way in here yet. I mean, I want everybody to have a chance to play, but we make sure to have a an, an approach to the jam session that's not just a wild, you know, a Wild West gunned out affair up on stage. Sure. Maybe a variation on a question I asked you before, but as you listen to to falling up, can you can you identify in it particular things that probably wouldn't be there if you hadn't come to Nashville? Uh, besides the musicians, though. Hmm, that's a good question. Um, well, I mean, in some respects, many of the tunes wouldn't be there had I not come to Nashville because all of the eight tracks on the album, all of the f- first six were written for jam sessions um, and specifically for people at the jam who were, who you know, the featured guests at the jam sessions. Um, so, you know, who, I can't really say for sure how much of that information was going to come out one way or the other, no matter where I was or who I was playing with. Um, but unquestionably, um, you know, the the tunes and, and especially what we were speaking about earlier in terms of um, shaping them as songs, uh, for lack of a better term, um, was very much born out of the the lifestyle and musical aesthetics in Nashville. Uh, if folks go to the the show notes for this episode, um, they can find you online, both on the web and Twitter. But you can tell people where you're at right now. Who are sure, I have a website which is uh, evancobbjazz.com, and I'm 
sort of keep it like a blog. I put an update up there every month or two with a little bit of recent happenings and um, try to share some uh, different musical sounds uh, if I'm able to get a recording of what's going on. Um, and, of course, I do keep my calendar fairly updated there in terms of uh, different uh, different places I'll be playing. My guest is Evan Cobb. Uh, thanks so much for, for hosting me. And I, it's absolutely true that if I hadn't stayed with you, this Nashville experience would have not have been what it was. So I'm really, uh, I'm really glad I got a chance to stay here and that you uh, showed me around your town. It's a, it's a pretty great place. Well, I appreciate it, Jason. Thank you for coming, and thank you very much for doing what you do. And uh, since my dog likes you, I figured I better, <laughs> I better show you a good time because he's a good judge of character. That's great. My guest is Evan Cobb. The CD is falling up. Check it out and find him online at evancobbjazz.com. That's music from saxophonist Evan Cobb and his album Falling Up. I'm Jason Crane. This is the Jazz Session, sponsored by Matt Rock and Murat Verdi, and maybe by you. If you become a sponsor at the $50 a month or $500 a year level, which you can do at thejazzsession.com slash join. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter at Jason D. Crane. Keep up with the show in iTunes or using an RSS reader. You'll find all the links at thejazzsession.com. You can also join the mailing list. And remember, the Jazz or Bust Tour Part 2 starts Labor Day weekend in Detroit. That's this coming weekend. And I could use your help. Please go to thejazzsession.com slash tour to find out how you can help make the tour a success. Thank you so much for listening. Now get out there and support live jazz whenever and wherever you can. And come back next time for another conversation about jazz on the Jazz Session. Bye. Bye. Bye.